Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 249 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Jamila Afghani, Deputy Minister of Martyrs and Disabled Affairs in Afghanistan and member of the Afghani delegation to the United Nations. Jamila is the founder and chairperson of the Noor Educational and Capacity Development Organization, known as NECDO, and a gender and human rights activist who is the recipient of the Tenenbaum Peace Peacemaker in Action Award. Jamila, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Thank you. Thank you very much. Perfect. Thank you. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Um, uh, for the first 18 years of my life, I have uh, worked for my people, for my country. Uh, I started uh, my work in refugee camps uh, when we were living in Pakistan, in refugee camps, and uh, I established uh, the NGO, Noor Educational and Capacity Development Organization, and through that we have uh, designed and implemented hundreds of projects, uh, and we have served uh, a large number of women, children, youth, uh, and also men. So, uh, Jamila, just right there, there's a very interesting part of your story. You moved to the refugee camp at the age of 14. I believe you may have been shot in the head during that Soviet war. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. Uh, because the time, uh, it was very difficult to, to migrate to Pakistan due to Rus- Russian invasion and Afghanistan, and they were like closing the borders. Mm-hmm. So how is it? Uh, and, uh, so I wonder how it is you get shot there in the refugee camp, and somehow you turn around and you decide that you want to create your own nonprofit organization. How much? How, how did you come to that conclusion? And how much time passed in between those two events? Actually, the time was um, uh, uh, long enough uh, between the, the the shot I had on my head and the start of my work. I was only 14 years old uh, when I went uh, to to Pakistan. I migrated to Pakistan, and on the way to Pakistan, I got the bullet. Um, but spending the time there uh, in refugee camp, and I got my education and my my master's degree. Then after that, I start my social activity. Was it difficult so, starting a nonprofit organization uh, in the refugee camp? Well, I guess you were in transit to the refugee camp when you were shot. But is it difficult to serve as a deputy minister of Afghanistan and just to work for your country in a place where you had been the victim of a violent crime, where someone intended for it to lead their actions to lead to your death? Yeah, actually, the the life we have a and uh, I was uh, in every stage of my life, uh, step by step, I was trained to be uh, in difficult position. And uh, I decided to def- uh, to dedicate my life, my my uh, um, my life uh, for serving my people. So the start of work in, in the camps were uh, very much difficult, as you know, besides many security and other issues. Afghanistan is a very man-dominated uh, society, especially on that time, Mujahideen had very important role, and they were covering different camps. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, entering to that camps and uh, working with women and children was not an easy job. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, as uh, being an Afghan, I understood that the sensitivity and the, those points which make uh, irritation um, towards my work. So I tried to be very much uh, patient and to be uh, step by step, like strategically, uh, I, I went inside the camp with a certain Quranic education and uh, literacy program in the camp. Was it difficult uh, as a woman to start your own organization and begin getting respect uh, with that organization, especially since a lot of what you're trying to do is be an activist for, for women's rights and provide education to women because it's so difficult for women to be educated in the first place? Can you speak about the challenges you encountered in trying to get an education as a woman, how being disabled actually helped you in that respect in Pakistan, and how that led to the founding of Ned- NECTO? Yeah, actually, it was really difficult for me, first of all, uh, inside my family, because my uh, father and my brothers, uh, they were not happy with my education, with with my social activity. Like every day, they were creating more problems for me. Mm-hmm. But through support of my sister-in-laws and um, my friends outside, I could manage to, to do activity. Uh, after a while, when my uh, father and brothers realized that she's uncontrollable, <laughs> she she will continue with the, all the threats and all the warnings I was receiving from the uh, from them. At the same way, it was also difficult in the camp, like uh, to to work uh, in a, a very tense environment where families were. In, in very difficulty of uh, not having food, not having shelter. And you were talking about education and about uh, prosperity and development. It was really difficult for me. But uh, as I said before, like uh, step by step with patience, with dedication, I could um, got the attention of people and also the community leader when they found that I'm not talking something from the sky. I'm talking from the community and the need of our people. So slowly and gradually it was adopted. So uh, you you mentioned earlier that as you were trying to get an education, even your own father and brother opposed it. Uh, And and through the course of your work, that you've discussed how uh, Islam actually supports the education of women. Uh, although that perspective is not often acknowledged by imams, so you've begun a program to uh, correct imams' interpretation of the Quran, and in so doing, you've you've enabled there to be a significant uh, shift in support for women's education in Afghanistan. Can you speak about how you discovered that the Quran actually supports educating women and why uh, imams for perhaps centuries or millennia have not been able to recognize that? Yeah, actually, it also started from my own life experience. Like when I was asking my father and brothers that why they are not allowing me for education, and they were saying in Islam, a good woman is that woman who can sit at home and can be obedient to, to father and brother and husband. So uh that's why they were not allowing me and this was the the main concept they had. 
I started studying Quran by myself. I uh, tried to learn Arabic language and I wanted to see what Quran tells me. When I was studying Quran and I found that the message in Quran is totally different from what is really understood in our society. More of tribalism and more of the cultural domination in our society has impacted the Quranic education or maybe the Islamic education also. That was the reason and I found that those um, uh, ayahs or those verses which can be supportive to the education of women and uh, importance of knowledge and education. In one of our centers in Ghazni province, uh, one of the imam who was creating big sum of problem for us and he was not allowing uh, other community members to send their children to our center and he was saying that she's not a good woman, she's traveling all alone and she's working with men in her organization. Mm-hmm. You should not send your children to her school. Uh, finally, uh, I had to face this guy because every day he was creating problems. Right. And when we, uh, I was uh, able to invite them to our center and I start talking to them. Uh, to him, and I told them that if he gave me any quotation from Quran or Hadith that I'm doing wrong and education is wrong, I will hand over all the keys of my center to his hand and I will leave everything for him. But the verses I had were much more stronger than the knowledge that guy had. And finally, he turned his face towards me and I said, oh, I didn't know you have this much knowledge of Islam. Unfortunately, um, even our mullahs and our imams are very confined in in a very poor, um, uh, disconnected society in mountainous villages, and even they don't have uh, proper knowledge of current affairs. They are just totally bind up to the very classic and to the very ancient um, education. And one of the reasons that today we are facing big sum of problem, it's because of that disconnectivity and um, uh, lack of information and knowledge. So I'd like to transition at this point on this topic of the difficulty that uh, Afghani interpretations of the Quran uh, pose not only in communal life and in, and in, the, uh, in the life of villagers, uh, female villagers not being able to get an education, but even in the halls of government in Kabul, uh, there are difficulties posed when female parliamentarians try to speak to male parliamentarians. Is it, isn't that true? Is there, a, is there any difficulty that gender presents to actual elected members of the legislature in Afghanistan? Uh, yeah, overall, like the um, um, majority of the system today, uh, in most of the country, and especially in Afghanistan, is um, carried out by men. Mm-hmm. So and, and men are coming from the same background as I was discussing before, and uh, especially in parliament, uh, we have lots of warlords and uh, tribal leaders that, due to that the power they had, they have come and uh, and uh, 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 received the position in the parliament. And it's really difficult for women to to uh, to get attention. 
uh, or get support as uh, as based on our professionalism, based on our knowledge and experience, and mostly the the gates for uh, or the seats for for women uh, has filled through their own interest. Like yeah. symbolically, they have brought some women in the seats, and uh, like. Uh, uh, those of professionalism and uh, knowledge has uh, left behind. Now, Jamila, you are currently a cabinet secretary. You're the deputy minister of martyrs and disabled affairs, um, partially, and then you're the member of Afghani delegation of the United Nations. So you are a woman, but you're very prominent, and you've been placed in positions of power in Afghanistan. How did that come to pass? How is it that in a society in which women are so are are so inhibited from participating in public life, you've come to rise to national and international prominence, representing your nation among the Hall of Nations uh, in the United Nations in New York and in Switzerland? Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, my social activity and my social recognition was uh, the main reason that Afghan government, National Unity Government, has... Uh, uh, has uh, found out about me and about my work because my work is well recognized in my country and uh, now people are accepting or receiving my my uh, my services and uh, they are uh, supporting me. And uh, uh, like the current uh, National Unity Government is struggling to bring uh, changes in the system and uh, by bringing uh, professional people in the system. Uh, although we have many, many oppositions uh, in different levels from different um, uh, stakeholders, but still the government is supporting us. And um, uh, one of the reasons that I have no, no political background, I, I don't uh, have inclination with any political party, but still I have uh, reached uh, to this higher uh, level of uh, position and it's because of my work and because of my civil society activity and recognition. Huh. So, you know, some of our, uh, the audience for public interest podcast is uh, very American centric. Okay. So many, many members, yeah. many individuals who are listening to this podcast episode may, they may have heard of a of a secretary of transportation, of uh, foreign relations, of commerce, uh, but it may it's, it may be somewhat foreign to many American ears to listen to a uh, min deputy minister for martyrs and disabled affairs. Can you speak about what it is that you do as a deputy minister for martyrs and disabled affairs, and and how that work advances the public interest? Um, as you know, Afghanistan is uh, uh, passing through the the long uh, term of uh, war, conflict, and fighting, and it's almost 40 years, four decades that we are suffering from instability and conflict. Large number of people are uh, killed, uh, and large number of people have become disabled due to landmines and the fighting, and uh, especially nowadays the suicide attack. There was uh, the need to to have an institution to reach to the need of these people who are suffering. 
Unfortunately, in the previous government, there was not special attention to this field. But after um, uh, enrollment of National Unity Government, um, there was a special attention to this part. And I was appointed uh, as a deputy minister for this department. And uh, what I had in my personal life and my background um, was considered that I will be the person to serve in a better way this uh, very vulnerable community. Now, I know we spoke for about this. Uh, I know we spoke about this a little bit before on the phone, but of course, you can't do very much for martyrs because, by definition, they're deceased. So you explained that that the role of martyrs in this agency that you're leading uh, is actually to support the survivors of individuals who died in these wars. Is that correct? Actually, uh, you know that Afghanistan is very local and very um, uh, backward society. Usually one man is working in a family and he's uh, responsible to feed the rest of family members. Maybe it's having father, mother, children and other people to look after. When one person is killed or died, all other family members are become paralyzed. Hmm. They are they are in need of help and support. So the system is uh, giving them uh, pension money or financial aid uh, to the rest of the family members until they are grown up or until they are getting a proper job or if the children of deceased children or uh, get married. And until that time, we have a scheme, a scheme of uh, pension money uh, giving to them. So. I'm wondering how someone meets the criteria for being a martyr. If if an individual were to go into central Kabul and blow himself up and kill 20 people, would his family get a pension? If he were a terrorist. Actually, no, no. Yeah, in different in different uh, eras in different areas, like we had Mujahideen, Taliban, and um, uh, government and local people, these are different categories. But whoever has received like um, uh, any injury or any problem uh, due to war, uh, due to conflict, this uh, uh, pension money is going to that. And uh, of course, there are a mechanism that we can identify it through our court uh, system and also through the health commission uh, that they are identifying the, the reason for disability and also the court um, uh, for approval of the disease or the death uh, certification. So there are some individuals whose families receive nothing, and then there are some individuals who are terrorists or members of the Taliban whose families do receive pensions. Are those statements correct? Um, uh, we do not uh, support Taliban through the pension money. Uh, uh, they are not falling under uh, this category. But, uh, of course, during Taliban, or uh, anybody who has got injury or anybody got uh, damage uh, by the Taliban, we are paying them pension money through and, this system. And then our American listeners may also be interested, uh, since Ameri- many American listeners are aware that 
American tax dollars have been funneled to Afghanistan, both to uh, support uh, American military forces and American nonprofit organizations, but also uh, to provide a smooth transition to a more stable government, essentially nation building. Our American listeners may be interested in learning if any of their tax dollars are used to fund these pensions. Actually, Afghan government is also very much uh, concerned and very much well aware of this fact, this reality, with respect to the the aid and support of international community, and especially the uh, USA uh, government is supporting Afghanistan. Uh, uh, and also, uh, uh, we are trying to to make the the, the, the proper understanding uh, uh, through the the mechanism and the uh, support mechanism we have. And of course, uh, those families who are living inside Afghanistan and they have got injuries from Taliban, mm-hmm. as a uh, as a good element that we are supporting them as uh, another added value to the system, mm-hmm. because uh, it will create more respect for government and more hatred uh, for Taliban on for for terrorists because. They are giving them injuries and damages, and we are uh, giving them help and support. So, uh, uh, well, due to, unfortunately, we have corruption, we have uh, some use in the system. That's why uh, we are working uh, on the biometric systemization of the pension money. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, some people may use double of uh, or two times of the pension money, maybe one in one province, one in another province. And some other um, points of misuse uh, are um, uh, available. I do accept this. But um, uh, in order to, to, to give this money to, to very vulnerable people, that is the main priority that we are focusing on that. So... This is Public Interest Podcast, and we're interested in speaking uh, about what constitutes the public interest. If you had the ears of American congressmen today, uh, I'd like to have you speak to them about what they ought to do to advance the public interest in Afghanistan for Afghanis. Has uh, the American presence in Afghanistan destabilized the country? Has it brought any positive benefits to the country? Are we trying to make Afghanistan too similar to America and Afghanis are resisting? What would you tell uh, American listeners and American politicians uh, needs to be done in order to make things better for Afghanis? Would you say that we ought to channel funding directly to NECTO so that we can build more libraries and schools for girls and achieve UN uh, development goals? What is it that we can do to help you advance the public interest for Afghanistan? Uh, well, uh, as you know, due to the, the, the ongoing the proxy war in Afghanistan, Afghanistan is in a very um, um, uh, difficult uh, geopolitical position right now when we have lots of actors that they are involved in Afghanistan. And for the stabilization of Afghanistan, they can see their own interests, their own national interests. Of course, we are in, uh, in dear need uh, to get support and help from our international uh, allies and friends, especially United States of America. 
And I believe that um, uh, dual system of support through government and through civil society will be the, the main uh, way to, to, um, to facilitate the help and uh, support for Afghan people. And like if uh, you uh, or maybe anybody else is bringing their own idea, their own mentality to impose it on Afghanistan, I think that won't be working in Afghanistan. Uh, if uh, you are supporting or empowering Afghan people, Afghan government, to look after themselves, to look after their own problems and issues, that will be in helpful in long term. And previous uh, funding and support, like it was not considered, sustainability was not considered. That was the major element that we cannot see much, much uh, progress. And also, of course, corruption. Uh, through some of the government channels, it was uh, it is uh, a big uh, challenge. But um, uh, civil society is at the same time they are also having very good and important uh, activity that in those areas that Afghan government uh, international um, uh, forces cannot reach, but civil society do exist in those local communities. They need empowerment. They need support to reach to people and uh, to to free people from the clashes of um, terrorists and the, the, the mafia and the old mentality people and to give them good message and new message for development and for peace. That Ju- can be very helpful. Just so a- my request from, um, yeah. from my uh, friends, um, uh, from my USA friends or that uh, is... Uh, to support Afghan people and empower them to facilitate their own uh, problems, their, to address their own issues, not to impose their own uh, ideas or strategies on us, which might be not useful in our country. And just a quick cultural check right now. Do most people living in what we refer to as Afghanistan know that they live in Afghanistan and consider themselves to be Afghani? Uh, sorry, I couldn't get properly. So uh, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm referring to uh, the role of the nation state in Central Asia, and I'm asking whether people living in Western Afghanistan or Eastern or Northern or Southern or Central Afghanistan, I wonder if all those people are aware that they're living in Afghanistan and would identify as Afghani, just so we know what the role of the nation state is over there. Do, do they all understand that they're Afghani? Of course, yes. Of course, yes. Uh, we believe um, in every corner of Afghanistan that we are Afghani. We, we, uh, we are very much uh, um, ready to sacrifice our life, our health and wealth, everything for, for safeguard of Afghanistan. But unfortunately, some of the political parties may want to ruin this mentality. Mm-hmm. But uh, as an Afghan living in Afghanistan, I can see, I can read the mentality of my people that nobody is in support of such a parties to, to think about separation of Afghanistan or division of Afghanistan. We, we work hard to to be uh, as a united uh, people. Like, we don't have that, that much animosity between Pashtun, Tajik, Hazara. But, you know, this is um, 
uh, uh, um, a game, a political game that comes in Afghanistan. Uh, but in, in reality, Afghan people do not go for that, and um, we we really condemn that uh, that type of division and separation. And uh, Jamila, as we approach the end of this podcast ap- episode, a final two-part question for you. I'd like to ask you to speak, uh, to reflect upon your lifetime uh, seeking to advance the public interest through NECTO, through your work as a social worker, uh, as a deputy minister, a cabinet secretary, as a, as a member uh, of the delegation of the United Nations, and speak about why it is that it's so important for you, especially having overcome polio, having been uh, shot in the head, having... Uh, and being a woman in a male-dominated uh, tribal-based society, why is it that you continue to persist and fight despite so many obstacles? And what do you hope would be your legacy, the impact of your work uh, to persist in advancing the public interest for Afghanistan? Well, uh, um, uh, first of all, um, education, knowledge, awareness, uh, understanding the, the reality makes you empowered to, to fight for your right, to struggle uh, for better, betterment, and uh, to have the dedication to, to not only have good life for yourself, but for your people, for your community. Uh, I think uh, uh, education and having good teachers and friends who were uh, very much helpful for me to, to support me for this, to overcome the challenges of such a man-dominated society, even inside my house, my father, my brothers were against me, uh, and I'm the only educated uh, daughter of my family. I, I'm the pioneer, and uh, uh, so um, I, I believe that education is the key, uh, 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 the key uh, solution for long-term problem in, uh, in any other society especially in Afghanistan. When women are educated, uh, they, they have the awareness, they have the knowledge, they will struggle, strive, uh, they will strive for having good life for themselves and for their children and also for their society. And that has been Jamila Afghani, the Deputy Minister of Martyrs and Disabled Affairs in Afghanistan, a member of the Afghani delegation of the United Nations, founder of the Noor Educational and Capacity Development Organization, an activist uh, who speaks about... uh, about pr- trying to provide a good life for her entire community, a community not separated into ethnic tribes, not Pashtun, but Afghani. Uh, she speaks about emphasizing education, not only for boys in, in uh, Muslim uh, uh education of the Quran, but also uh, for girls and for women, uh, that education will lead to the creation of a more positive uh, and vibrant civil society, which is indeed growing and which she is uh, uh, an ambassador of. Uh, Jamila has been uh, through personal tribulations, but for her, uh, advancing the public interest, uh, which is supporting and empowering Afghanis to look after themselves, something she encourages foreign powers to uh, do with to direct their foreign aid towards, and something that she uh, seeks to do with her own work, uh, is something that truly enhances uh, the public interest for the people of Af- Afghanistan. So, Jamil, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to talk to you. 
and to your listeners. And I hope the the message of uh, peace, love, and uh, unity for all of us uh, grow to, uh, go through your program to all communities. And I hope women everywhere in the world have better lives. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes. Leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.